This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Hi, I'm Matt Cooperberg. I am the Prostate Cancer Program Co-Leader at the UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center. In this series of videos, I'll be giving a brief introduction to prostate cancer, how we think about risk stratification at diagnosis, and how we help men make decisions about how to manage the cancer at time of initial diagnosis. This is particularly suited for men who are planning to come here for a consultation at time of diagnosis, but of course, is relevant for anybody out there. If you are coming to CSI UCSF, either virtually or in person, I strongly encourage you to review these before your appointment. Um, it will help you get the most out of your consultation with us here, and we look forward to meeting you. So welcome to Prostate Cancer 101. Uh, we keep much of the information that I will be reviewing here updated on our website as well at ucsfhealth.org, and the QR code in the lower right here will take you straight to that page. So the question, of course, is what now? once you've been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Now, this presentation, this series of talks will be targeted for men who have just recently been diagnosed with clinically localized disease, meaning it hasn't spread to other parts of the body, and of course, their friends and family and loved ones as well. Uh, you know, the information is tailored, but only a little bit for those who are actually going to be coming to see us here. Um, it's, of course, relevant for anybody managed anywhere in the country or elsewhere in the world. Um, and again, you're strongly encouraged to review this information before coming to the consultation at UCSF as being forearmed with information will help you get the most out of your visit with your clinical team here. Um, and as I said in the introduction, we keep a lot of this information up to date on our website. This is a short link here at the bottom and the QR code will take you straight to the page. Now, it's critical to emphasize at the outset that prostate cancer is a very slow-moving disease in the vast majority of cases. Five-year survival is basically 100%, even for men who have high-risk disease as long as it's localized at the time of diagnosis. And even men with advanced cancers, cancers which have spread to the bones, uh, typically can live for years given all the major advances that we've had in treatments over the last decade. Treatments continue to improve over time, all the time, and many of the side effects uh, that do still occur can, in fact, be managed. Um, it is really important that you take your time in coming to a decision about what to do about localized prostate cancer. This should not be thought of as a ticking time bomb. Uh, for the higher risk cancers, you do need to come to a decision, but it is not an emergency. You almost always have time uh, to come to one that makes sense to you and your loved ones and aligns well with your priorities. You should never feel like you're rushing into a decision, and we don't want anyone looking back uh, down the road and saying, I wish I'd had more time to make a better or different decision. So what we're going to be reviewing is what is the prostate? What is prostate cancer? Prostate cancer risk, so how we think about what is a high versus a low risk cancer. Active surveillance, which is just following low risk prostate cancer. Uh, surgery, radical prostatectomy. Radiation, including both brachytherapy, that's seed implants, and various forms of external beam radiation therapy. Focal therapy, that's destroying just the tumor, leaving the rest of the prostate alone, and other options. So what is the prostate, and what is prostate cancer? And a reminder that each of these sections will start with this QR code, which links you to our webpage with updated information. So what is the prostate? Prostate is a small reproductive organ. This is a side view of the anatomy. So you can see the prostate here sits underneath the bladder. 
the urethra, the tube that drains the bladder, comes right through the middle of the prostate on toward the penis here in the urethra. Uh, this is the sphincter muscle that holds in the urine and drives continent urinary control. And the prostate sits in front of the rectums. So this is how we were able to feel some tumors with a finger exam, a digital rectal exam, and how we're able to do biopsies through the rectum into the prostate here. The prostate has two jobs. One is to make some of the fluid that comes out with ejaculation. It makes seminal fluid that surrounds sperm, and it helps push that fluid forward through the penis at the time of ejaculation. As you can see, the urethra is much longer uh, from the prostate forward than the path would be to go back into the bladder. Uh, so if the prostate is not there to close off the neck of the bladder at the time of ejaculation, this fluid would go back into the bladder. So what is prostate cancer? Well, any cancer by definition is an abnormal growth of cells from one organ and spread of those cells to other parts of the body. Now, prostate cancer then is abnormal growth of prostate cancer cells to a point where they are able to spread. First, typically to the lymph nodes, which are part of the immune system, and then to other organs, most commonly bones. Prostate cancer is extremely common. Almost over a quarter million men every year in the US are diagnosed with prostate cancer, making it by far the most common cancer that we diagnose among men in the US. And frankly, it's even more common than that. If we look at autopsy series, so men who die of other causes um, and we look hard enough, we will find prostate cancer in most men if you live long enough. Uh, but of course, most of these are completely clinically irrelevant. And a lot of us are starting to say we shouldn't even use the word cancer when we find something that has no biologic capacity to spread or cause symptoms or threaten life. So over 30,000 men a year still die of prostate cancer in the U.S. It is the second most common cause of death among men in this country and uh, the fifth leading cause of cancer death around the world. But you can see here the number of men who actually die of it is far, far lower number than the number of men diagnosed, partly because we cure a lot of cancers, but also because a lot of the ones that we find and give this cancer label are not, in fact, cancer the way we think of it in society. Now, everybody wants to know why this happened. Why does a man get a prostate cancer? Well, any cancer reflects a combination of genes and environment. So the genes are the DNA that you're born with. You get half your DNA from your mother, half from your father, and there are some genes which predispose to cancers, things like uh, BRCA2, CHECK2, ATM. There's a whole series of genes uh, that we know about and others that we do not know about, um, which help drive predisposition to cancer. And then there's environmental factors. And this is everything else that happens to you from the moment uh, development starts from the egg and sperm on forward to everything that happens in life. Um, exposures during development before you're even born, diet, stress, smoking, exercise, uh, many things that are in your control in terms of what we think of as lifestyle factors and many things that you cannot control. Pollution, literally exposure to cosmic rays, a lot of this ultimately comes down to what we call bad luck. Uh, we do not know why many of these ultimately form. And the big question, of course, is what are the odds of actually dying of the prostate cancer when it's diagnosed? And the answer is that it depends, and it really depends critically on the risk of the cancer. So only a subset of prostate cancers that we find and that we label cancer actually need to be treated. Most men who get the diagnosis of prostate cancer would never know they had it if we had not gone sniffing around, checking PSAs, and doing biopsies. And most men with prostate cancer typically ultimately die of other causes, most commonly cardiac disease, because that's what kills most men in America. 
However, the subset, you know, the aggressive prostate cancers can spread. Um, they can be lethal. They can be cured if we catch them within the right window of opportunity. Um, and these are the ones that we're looking for, is the, the ones that if we do not find them, could potentially be lethal. And we need to make sure that our treatment decision-making reflects our understanding of disease risk. So low-risk cancers uh, should be managed with active surveillance, meaning we just keep an eye on it with PSAs, with repeat imaging tests, biopsies, not treat. And this is appropriate for almost all low-risk disease. And we'll talk in a, in a minute about what exactly defines low-risk. Slightly higher-risk tumors can be managed with focal therapy, where we treat the tumor, leave the rest of the prostate alone. Um, the ones that are solidly middle of the road will do well with surgery or radiation therapy. Still higher risk cancers should be treated with a combination of treatments, radiation together with long-term hormonal therapy, for example, or surgery followed by radiation. And then finally, the ones that are already metastatic when we find them, or we find them too late, are treated primarily with systemic treatment, with hormonal therapy, immunotherapies, other treatments uh, that treat the whole body and not just the prostate. So I've mentioned risk a few times in the introduction. And when we talk about prostate cancer risk, what we're talking about is the risk that the cancer might actually get worse. And what that means is the risk that the cancer might spread to other parts of the body and eventually become lethal. Now, there's a number of factors that we look at in trying to identify and sort out what is low versus high risk prostate cancer. The first is the PSA. PSA, of course, is prostate-specific antigen. If you're watching this video, you have almost certainly had at least one of these tests done. This is a blood test, which we use initially to screen for prostate cancer. Historically, we used 4.0 as a threshold of what's a normal versus an abnormal PSA. Today, we realize that it's actually really much more nuanced than that. The median PSA for men at age 45 is around 0.7. By the time it gets to age 60, is around 1.0 and drifts up from there. So 4.0 is actually already a somewhat high threshold. But in the spectrum of men with prostate cancer, lower is better. And generally speaking, under 10 is where we define low risk. Usually speaking, higher PSA indicates higher risk cancer. But lots of other things can make the PSA go up. PSA is prostate-specific antigen. It is not prostate cancer-specific antigen. And anything that happens to the prostate as you get older can affect the PSA. The most common thing is just that the prostate grows. You get what's called BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia. Um, infections can do it. Inflammation or prostatitis can certainly rise the PSA, sometimes chronically over the long term. Any sort of trauma like um, long bike rides can do it. Um, or, of course, it can be cancer. Now, the PSA density acknowledges the fact that if you've got a big prostate, you have a reason to have an elevated PSA just by nature of having a lot of prostate tissue making PSA. So PSA density is simply the PSA divided by the size of the prostate as measured by either an ultrasound or an MRI. Um, and we use different thresholds of PSA density to try to identify higher versus lower risk. Generally speaking, we like to see it under 0.15 or so, even more if we can see it under 0.12. This is very important because if you have a PSA of five, that may seem you know, slightly high for the general population, but if that's in the setting of a 50 gram prostate, which is only twice normal size, your PSA density is 0.1, which is quite low. Now, one of the most important drivers of prostate cancer risk is the Gleason score. This is how the cells look under the microscope. When the pathologists get the biopsy tissue, they look at all of it. They say, in each core, is there cancer or not? And if there is, does it look aggressive or not? Uh, now, there's different ways to read out the Gleason score. Um, historically, this has been read out on a one to five pattern scale, and two different patterns are assigned to each core, 
recognizing that prostate cancer can be quite heterogeneous within a given patient and even within a given biopsy core. So the first number indicates the most common pattern. The second number indicates the highest pattern. Generally speaking, pattern three is low grade, pattern four is intermediate, and pattern five is high grade. So for example, a Gleason 3 plus 4 means it's mostly low grade cancer with some intermediate grade. Now, more recently, pathologists have been reading out grade groups, which are meant to try to simplify the Gleason scoring system down to a one to five scale, which I realize can get confusing because both the patterns and the groups are on this one to five scale. But this is the breakdown here. Gleason 3 plus 3 is now called grade group one or GG1. Uh, 3 plus 4 is grade group 2, 4 plus 3 is group 3, 4 plus 4 is group 4, and any pattern 5, so 4 plus 5 or 5 plus 4, puts you into grade group 5. Now, there's other things that we read out on the pathology report, which are also quite important. First of all, there's the question of how much cancer is there. A typical biopsy template is anywhere from 10 to 14 cores, and these days we will take additional cores if we see lesions on MRI or ultrasound. Um, so it stands to reason having just one core positive is less of a risk than if you've got 10 out of 14 cores positive. Sometimes the pathology report will also read out how much of each core is involved with cancer, which can also be useful information. But details really matter. There is certainly an extent to which you'd rather have 10 cores of Gleason 3 plus 3 than one or two cores of Gleason 4 plus 5, because it's the fact of any amount of, of high-grade cancer that can really make the cancer likely to spread early. Now, when we look at Gleason pattern four in particular, there are more details that matter, which is the different patterns. So there are several different patterns, different appearances of the prostate glands under the microscope that are all grouped together into pattern four. Some of these are not that concerning. When we see so-called fused gland or poorly formed gland subtype pattern four, this actually behaves not that differently than pattern three. On the other hand, when we see so-called cribriform pattern, this is more concerning, especially if it is in expansile cribriform or large cribriform. And then there's another version called intraductal, uh, which is even worse. And these are all categorized within Gleason pattern four. So the details really do matter. And it's also very important to make sure that pathology slides are re-reviewed by prostate specialist, um, you know, subspecialist expert pathologists. And we do that at UCSF, as do many other medical centers. Now, what about clinical stage? So this is actually not one of the most important in prostate cancer relative to many other cancers, at least in terms of the, the T stage. So the stage of the cancer uh, describes the growth extent of the cancer. The T stage is how much it's grown within the primary organ where it started. N stage is whether it's into lymph nodes and M stage is whether it's metastasized to other parts of the body. So the T stage for prostate cancer really refers to whether it can be felt on a finger exam. And that's still the standard of care today, even though we are doing more and more imaging. So technically speaking, if you cannot feel a tumor, but can see it on MRI, that's still a T1 tumor, meaning it can't be felt. If we can feel it, but there's no sign that it's outside the edge of the prostate, that's a T2. If it's outside the edge of the prostate, that's a T3. If it is into the bladder, that's a T4. And then if it's in the lymph nodes, that's an N1. And if it's gone to other parts of the body, again, most commonly the bones, that is an M1 cancer. So we put all this together in risk stratifying prostate cancer. So good risk stratification will account for all these factors together to try to give a given man with a diagnosis a sense of how much he does or does not need to be worried about a given diagnosis of prostate cancer. <clears throat> now there's lots of ways to do this. The most common one is this risk grouping system from the NCCN. There's another version put out from the AUA. 
This has honestly gotten relatively cumbersome and is not that accurate. There's a lot of variation in terms of actual risk within each one of these categories, especially within the intermediate risk categories and even within high risk. As we said before, you can have a high PSA just from having a really big prostate. So you can have a PSA 21 grade group one tumor, stage T1, and still be technically high risk just because you've got a big prostate and therefore a high PSA. This is not a good way of doing risk stratification. The very low risk group in particular, we really don't even find anymore. And in the updated AUA uh, guideline, this is no longer even subclassified. Everybody with low risk disease, whether or not they meet criteria for very low risk disease, should really be thinking about active surveillance as the first choice for treatment, except in pretty unusual circumstances. Now, there are better ways to do risk stratification. This is the CAPR score that we published at UCSF back in 2005. This has been validated all around the world in dozens of different studies and has repeatedly, repeatedly been shown to be quite accurate in stratifying risk. This is quite easy to do. It's the same typical variables, PSA, Gleason, T-stage, the percent of biopsy cores involved, and age. You add these up for a zero to 10 score which is very accurate in terms of stratifying likelihood of actually dying of prostate cancer over the next 15 to 20 years. And what you can see from this graph here, you want to stay at the top, meaning very low likelihood of dying of cancer. CAPR zero, basically nobody dies to 15 years, very few with CAPR one. On the other hand, those with bad cancer, CAPR nine and 10, 50% of these men actually die of disease within 10 years. This is fortunately not that common. We find many more low-risk cancers than high-risk cancers. And this, by the way, is about 85% accurate. So if you ever hear comments that we cannot tell aggressive from non-aggressive prostate cancer, that is just not true. Now, do you need additional imaging beyond whatever was used to diagnose the cancer? The answer is it depends. Um, historically, we used bone scans to look for disease in the bones and CT or MRI to look at the lymph nodes. Uh, these days, we're really using MRI as the primary local staging modality along with ultrasound. So this is the best ways of determining whether the cancer has spread outside the capsule of the prostate in terms of local extent, whether we see a T3 tumor. And then to look for cancer in other parts of the body, um, there are a variety of different PET-CT scans that are available. In 2023, the one that has really taken over is called PSMA PET scanning. This can be done as a PSMA PET-CT or PET-MR. It's able to look at both bones and soft tissue and is definitely the most accurate test we have ever had for distant staging of prostate cancer. Now, even a PSMA PET does have its false positives. You have to watch out for things like a single spot showing up in one rib. And there are false negatives. Even a PSMA PET cannot show us microscopic disease in lymph nodes or in bones. So this is still not a definitive test, but it's the best one we have ever had. Now, not everybody with a diagnosis needs a PSMA PET. We really reserve it for men with high-risk disease or those who are at the higher end of the intermediate risk range. Now, what about genomic testing? So this is looking to see what makes the cancer tick at the level of the genes. So you've got the same DNA in every cell in your body that you inherited from your parents. Um, and what tells the cell, this is a prostate cell versus a brain cell versus a blood cell, is which sets of genes are turned on and turned off in a given cell. Now, what makes a cancer is dysregulation of those genes. You get growth signals that are on when they're supposed to be off. You get mobility signals that are on when they're supposed to be off. You get regulatory pathways that are turned off when they should be on. And we can start to interrogate these pathways. We can start to count up the number of genes that are incorrectly regulated and make more precise predictions about which cancers are likely to be aggressive versus not. 
The ones that we've used most over the years are Decipher, Prolaris, and Oncotype. These are all looking at, at RNA expression, at gene expression in prostate tissue that we get from biopsy. The one that we're using overwhelmingly is Overwhelmingly these days is the Decipher because it's giving us a look at the whole genome, all 30,000 genes, uh, which gives us a lot of information about how the cancer might behave uh, over years to come. In some cases, if you have a strong family history of prostate cancer or certain other risk factors, we may also recommend genetic testing. This is looking to see whether there are any mutations in the DNA that you were born with that might set you up for having developed the cancer in the first place, things like BRCA mutations, ATM, CHECK2, et cetera. Although only in unusual circumstances is genetic testing actually dictating what we are doing for you with localized disease. So next we are going to cover active surveillance. Active surveillance is the new standard of care for basically all men with low risk prostate cancer, except in very unusual circumstances. Active surveillance recognizes that most prostate cancers grow very slowly over years and over decades, and therefore that the window of opportunity to cure prostate cancer is measurable in years or in decades. Now, surveillance is not the same as watchful waiting. Watchful waiting is an older term, which we would use for men who have a lot of heart disease, for example, and a limited life expectancy. And watchful waiting would say, go home and don't worry about this. If in the unlikely event you show up with bone pain or metastases down the road, we can slow down the cancer with hormonal therapy. Surveillance is very different. Surveillance recognizes that the window of opportunity is very, very long and that we can potentially defer curative treatment like surgery and radiation for years and not miss the window to cure. So we watch the cancer and defer surgery, radiation, or other treatments until we have some evidence that it might be getting worse. And then we treat with every intention and expectation of still curing the cancer. And this is why surveillance needs to be active. We want to make sure that we see evidence of the cancer progressing well before it is too late. And we typically can do that. And as I said, surveillance really now is the standard of care preferred for nearly all patients who are diagnosed with low risk disease. So that's grade group one, uh, with relative, especially those with relatively low volume. So who's a good candidate? Almost everyone, as I said, with low-risk cancer, so that's um, clinical stage one or two and Gleason 3 plus three, ideally PSA under 10. But as I mentioned in the previous section, if you have a high PSA, just because you have a really big prostate and your PSA density is low, then PSA really should not be an exclusion for doing active surveillance. And almost everybody with three plus three is at this point a good candidate. Now there are exceptions. If you've got 10 cores of three plus three in the setting of a really bad family history, your father and brother both had high grade disease or died of the cancer early in life, you know, obviously there are going to be exceptions, but almost everyone with low risk disease at least can choose surveillance initially. We're increasingly focused on those who have intermediate risk cancer and are also very good candidates. So those with the Gleason 3 plus 4, particularly the favorable subtypes of, of 3 plus 4 that we discussed in the last section, the fused gland and poorly formed gland subtypes, especially where there's not very much pattern four. And these men are also very good candidates for active surveillance, acknowledging that there's a higher risk that they're going to need treatment at some point in the future. Uh, but still, that time may be years down the road. And age is not necessarily a factor either. There's still a perception out there that young men really should go straight to treatment because they've got so many years in front of them. Look, this is not true. As a young man, you definitely can do active surveillance. Understanding you may need treatment in the future, but I would much rather have my prostate operated on or radiated 
at age 63 than 53. And frankly, I'd rather have it in 2023 than 2013 because treatments are constantly improving. Now, do we need additional tests to qualify a man for active surveillance? Yes and no. I think we wanna make sure that we have taken a good look to make sure we have not missed some higher grade cancer because we do know that at the time of diagnosis, there are still 20 to 30% of men who have what looks like low risk disease at the initial diagnosis who are found in the first year to have something worse because the original, original biopsy just missed it. So we do look at the PSA density that we described last time in the last section. That's the PSA, again, divided by the prostate volume. Imaging really needs to be done at a high quality center. And that is either a high quality transrectal ultrasound or an MRI done at a place that knows what they're doing. There's huge variation in quality out there in terms of how MRI of the prostate is done. And this really does need to be done at a center of excellence. If we are on the fence, if we're kind of on the edge in terms of whether a man is a good candidate for surveillance or not, for example, there is pattern four present, or there's a lot of pattern three in a younger man, then genomic tests, the ones I discussed in the last section, like Decipher, can be very helpful as tiebreakers. Now, it's also very important that a confirmatory biopsy be done, especially if the first biopsy was done without high quality MRI or ultrasound guidance. This means doing an MR followed by a followed by a repeat biopsy at a center of excellence like UCSF or a comparable institution, again, to make sure that we have not missed a higher grade cancer, because sometimes we can pretty substantially undersample the cancer on the first biopsy. Now, what does surveillance look like? So we keep an eye on things. <clears throat> Typically, we get a PSA every three months for the first year, and after that, we drop the frequency to every six months, assuming things are relatively stable. Uh, historically, repeat biopsies would be done every year or two. Um, today, we are really trying to tailor this and minimize the number of biopsies that we have to do. So we're doing this by looking at the details of everything we've learned about an individual cancer, how it's behaved over time, what the PSA has been doing, whether we have had negative biopsies. In other words, we find a cancer, then the next time around, we don't even find the cancer with a biopsy. That's a very good sign that this cancer is not going to progress. So those with a number of favorable risk factors, uh, we're really trying to stretch out the intervals to biopsy by years. And in many cases now, once we've done a confirmatory biopsy, uh, we're feeling better about the idea of actually replacing biopsies with MRI, as long as the MRI is stable, and again, done at a high quality center with good quality prostate MR. So what's the risk of surveillance? They're frankly low. Every time we do a biopsy, there is a low infection risk. It's under 1%, and we do a lot of things to try to minimize that. There are also low risks of bleeding. Uh, biopsy does not spread prostate cancer. This is a question that comes up all the time. There are some cancers that are so-called sticky and will spread along needle tracts and things like that. Prostate cancer virtually never does this. There are case reports in the literature, but we're talking about a couple out of truly millions and only the worst of the worst, uh, which we would not be talking about surveillance for anyway. Uh, there is a theoretical risk that the cancer can spread to other parts of the body during a period of surveillance, but this is very, 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 very low. Um, you know, the the if you look at surveillance series with long-term follow-up, about 3% of men that go down the surveillance path ultimately die of prostate cancer. That's very similar to the rates of men who die of prostate cancer who started with surgery or radiation, and it reflects the fact that we do undersample some of these cancers. And also the fact that there are men that start on the surveillance path and really don't get their surveillance interventions. So if you're doing active surveillance, it is a commitment on your part to work with us, work with the urologists and keep an eye on things. You cannot just sort of sail off into the sunset if you've got a good life expectancy, because some cancers do get worse over time. Finally, there can be anxiety associated with, uh, with active surveillance. 
I would stress here one thing I said earlier in the presentation, which is that many of us are starting to say that low-grade prostate cancer, grade group one, shouldn't even be called cancer because we create a lot of anxiety with that C-word diagnosis. We use the word cancer for an extraordinary spectrum of human biology, ranging from prostate cancer at the low end of the risk spectrum to things like pancreatic cancer at the other end. Prostate cancer, on average, is one of the slowest growing cancers, and even the aggressive ones are slow growing compared to most other aggressive types of cancer. And then within prostate cancer, we risk stratify further, and the lowest risk prostate cancers basically never spread. So, you know, part of our job is to work with you on anxiety and, and you know, try to pull you back from the cliff that many men feel like they're facing. Just because we put the C word on this does not mean that this needs immediate treatment. And it should be a pretty uncommon scenario that we wind up treating a low-risk prostate cancer just because of anxiety. It does happen, but it should be uncommon. Now, how long can you do surveillance? This is in evolution as we have built up longer and longer follow-up in the large active surveillance series. At UCSF now, over 2,500 men have gone down this path since the 1990s. Some men have been surveilled for well over a decade. On average, about half of all men that start down this path are going to wind up getting treated within the first five years or so, meaning half of them stay on surveillance. And I would say the trend is keeping men on surveillance longer and longer. And we're constantly refining our approach to surveillance, trying to figure out ways to identify the small subset of men who are going to progress and get them to treatment quickly, and also to identify those who are at the lowest risk of progression so that we can really de-intensify surveillance regimens, do fewer biopsies, and reduce the risk of over-treating cancers, which are otherwise not going to spread. Next, I'm going to cover surgery, radical prostatectomy, as a means of curing prostate cancer. Uh, as a reminder, if you are skipping ahead to this section, the QR code down in the right here will take you to our webpage with updated to the minute information. So what is a prostatectomy? So radical prostatectomy means removing the entire prostate gland along with the seminal vesicles, which are the glands right next to the prostate, which together with the prostate, make the fluid that surrounds sperm and comes out with ejaculation. The part of the urethra, the tube that drains the bladder toward the penis, the part of the urethra that goes right through the middle of the prostate is removed together with the prostate. And the bladder is sewn down to the urethra here to meet the sphincter muscle, which sits right under the prostate here. In some cases, in cases of higher risk disease, we will also do a lymph node dissection and remove the nodes along the pelvic bones, which are the nodes where the prostate cancer cells are most likely to go if they're going to escape the prostate. Traditionally, prostatectomy was done through an open incision above the pubic bone. Today, the vast majority of these procedures at UCSF and at most other major, major centers are done in what's called a robot-assisted procedure. This is not really a robot. Robot implies autonomy. The da Vinci machine, which is a machine that we use, allows us to translate the surgeon's motions um, inside the body using 3D visualization and incredibly good fidelity of translating my right hand to the right hand of the instrument during the surgery. We do this through five or sometimes six small incisions across the upper abdomen. We fill up the belly with carbon dioxide gas and we're looking down toward the prostate while we do the surgery. Now it's critical to stress that the most important thing here is the skill and experience of the surgeon, not the machine. If you have a surgeon who's done 2000 open operations with good results, he, should just, he or she should just continue. You'd much rather be open operation number 2002 than robot operation number two for that surgeon. And every surgeon really needs to know his or her own outcomes. And you should ask questions about surgeons' individual outcomes. Because again, the, the, the skill and experience 
factors far outweigh the methodology or the approach in terms of open versus laparoscopic versus robotic. So what's involved? Whether we do this open or robot assisted uh, prostatectomy requires general anesthesia. Short-term risks of the surgery are really quite low. Risk of bleeding to the point of needing a transfusion is only about 1%. The infection risk is pretty minimal. We typically give an antibiotic to minimize that. For somebody that has not had a lot of prior belly surgeries or prior radiation to the prostate, the risk of injuring organs around the prostate, such as the rectum or the small bowel, really should be no more than theoretical. Most men stay in the hospital one night after the surgery. There are centers which are doing this as an outpatient procedure. Uh, we typically don't hear because most many men that, that have surgery here are coming from hours away. So most men will spend one night in the hospital. We leave a catheter, called a Foley catheter, which drains the bladder for one week after the surgery. It drains the urine to a bag you wear on your leg. The catheter is a nuisance. It is not painful. Um, and we typically recommend avoiding any sort of heavy lifting or strenuous activity for four to six weeks just to avoid a hernia forming through one of the incisions. But we want lots of walking. You're on your feet literally the day of the surgery, up and down the halls the next day before going home. And the overall recovery is typically pretty straightforward. Most men do not need much in the way of pain medication beyond Tylenol and ibuprofen, although we do give some you know, handful of narcotic pills to take home in case you need them. So two minor advantages with the surgery. Number one is that when we take the prostate out, we get the final word on the grade and the stage because the whole prostate goes to the pathologists and they will tell us the final grade, final stage. We get this within two weeks after the surgery. If there's questions about the margins during the surgery, we can send what's called a frozen section, which is a preliminary look at the margin, but we really do wait for this final pathology report. And then within two months after the surgery, the PSA should fall to undetectable. We can't quite say zero, but a very low level below some threshold, typically here it's 0.015, within about eight weeks after the surgery, and it should stay undetectable forever. If it rises in the future, we worry this might be indicative of recurrent cancer. And at this point, uh, we can repeat imaging, uh, typically at this point with a PSMA PET, when the PSA gets to around 0.2, and talk about additional treatments such as post-operative radiation therapy. Now, long-term, what really matters is to cure the cancer, maintain urinary function, and maintain sexual function, usually more or less in that order. So again, cancer control, as I just talked about, we assess with the pathology report and most importantly with the PSA outcomes. And the likelihood of curing the cancer is really driven by the disease risk. We're much more likely to cure a sort of low intermediate risk cancer than we are to cure a very high risk cancer outright. Uh, so what about urinary recovery? Well, when we take the catheter out of the bladder, that's typically one week after the surgery, most men will have a degree of incontinence or urinary leakage, um, especially with things that tense up the belly muscles like cough, strain, sneeze, stand up, laugh. Again, anything that tenses the abdominal muscles will tend to cause leakage. We are usually talking about a few drops with sneezing, not an open water faucet. So typically men will manage this with urinary pads, which are kind of like women's menstrual liners. We're not usually talking diapers. Uh, the duration that you need to wear the pads can be variable. This depends on age, on the size of the prostate, on some technical factors during the surgery, and also on just your, the native length of the urethra and some anatomic factors, which are beyond anyone's control. So the duration is a little bit variable. Some men get their continence back quite quickly within the first few, within the first couple of weeks. Um, the average time is two to three months, but it can go on for up to a year before we say this is how life is going to be. By one year, in our hands at UCSF, likelihood of good recovery is about 90% um, of men who are able to get rid of the pads, uh, or even a little bit higher than that. Of the remainder, six to eight percent of men will have minor 
long-term leakage where you wear one pad a day long-term for a couple drops, drops of the leak with sneezing, et cetera. Likelihood of bad leakage past a year where we're talking about multiple pads a day, diaper scenario, uh, that is pretty uncommon at in our hands, no more than about 1%. And it's really important to stress that there are things we can do to address incontinence when it does persist past a year. It, we see all the time men who are years out from treatment, um, often treated elsewhere, who are having pretty severe incontinence, which could have been addressed. There are things like sling procedures, artificial urinary sphincter procedures, which really can address leakage, if not perfectly, to a great extent. So there should be no suffering in silence once we get past this one-year point after the surgery. Now, it's also important to note that BPH, benign growth of the prostate very, very frequently coexists with surgery. And one other advantage with the surgery is by move, removing the prostate, we remove any degree of obstruction. So if you have a lot of obstructive symptoms just from having a big prostate in addition to the prostate cancer, while this is a bit of a killing two birds with one stone situation, and by deobstructing the prostate, we will actually often improve urinary flow substantially. So for men that have obstruction going in, it's not uncommon to actually wind up with better overall urinary function six months down the road than where you started. Now, what about erectile recovery? So the nerves that drive penile erections run all the way from the bottom of the, of the spine, um, all the way along the pelvis, along the prostate on the way to the penis. The nerves are not actually really involved with the prostate directly. It's just they run stuck to the prostate. So they're a bit of a bystander when we take the prostate out. And even when we spare these nerves, they do get stretched, they get heated up. There are, there are microscopic nerve fibers on each side and they're quite sensitive. Uh, so even when we do spare nerves, they're going to shut down from the point of the prostate forward and then have to recover all the way from the spine. And this takes time. Now, how much we can nerve spare depends on clinical factors like the grade of the cancer and critically on the imaging. So if the cancer is high grade, but we have pretty good confidence it is not past the edge of the prostate, we can still spare most or all of the nerve. And typically we will spare all the nerve on the side uh, where we don't have high grade cancer. Now, as I said, even with good nerve sparing, erections will still take a hit after the surgery. In fact, they may often get worse for the first two months after the surgery, and then you get recovery over time. Now this recovery can be, and usually is, much slower than the urinary recovery. It can take two years or even longer for sexual function to get back to where it's going to be. Uh, in our hands, if we do bilateral nerve preservation, about two-thirds of men will get back to baseline function by two years after the surgery. But this is very variable depending on how much nerve sparing we can do and based on what baseline function is. Um, unlike the urinary piece, we never make anybody's sexual function better in any way by doing surgery or radiation or any other treatment to the prostate. Now, we're aggressive, as aggressive as a man wants to be, with so-called penile rehabilit rehabilitation. So even though we can see a two-year recovery period, we don't wait that long. We get aggressive with medications like Viagra and Cialis pretty early. If these are not sufficient in the first couple of months to get at least partial erections going, uh, we get more aggressive with things like a vacuum device, injection therapy. There's a whole range of things we can do to force the issue and get blood flowing. Now, even if we do get good erections back, even if they come back quickly, there's no ejaculation ever again. The seminal fluid, as I said at the beginning of this section, is made by the prostate and seminal vesicles. So after surgery, you can still have an orgasm, which is in the brain. You still feel muscle contraction, but there's a so-called dry climax. Um, and for this reason, too, fertility is not possible. You literally get a vasectomy as part of the surgery. If fertility may be a concern, you can bank sperm in advance of the, of the procedure, or it is possible to harvest sperm directly from the testis down the road, but that does mean an additional invasive procedure. 
About 5% of men notice a slight shortening of the penis after the surgery. This is typically a concern for men who carry a lot of fat in front of the pubic bone and those who have a very large prostate where we have a large gap to bridge. This is typically temporary, and I would say it's only about 5% of men that, that notice this. It's usually about a half an inch when it is noticed, and it usually gets better with time. Now, some of these side effects may be worse if the surgery is combined with radiation therapy, especially if the radiation is given before surgery. So for men who get radiation after surgery who have had a good urinary recovery, we usually see stable urinary function. If they're still having leakage at the time of the radiation, the radiation can fix that recovery in place. So it can be harder to get to completely dry if there's still leakage at the time of the radiation. Now, on the other hand, if you've had radiation first and are getting surgery as a so-called salvage procedure after radiation, then all these risks are substantially higher. The risk of rectal injury, for example, becomes a real possibility. The risk of severe incontinence is more like one in four rather than 1%. Um, these can still be dealt with, but the risks are substantially higher. For more details specifically on prostatectomy, uh, you can see this link here or the QR code, and there's a video by one of our nurse practitioners who talks in, in a lot of detail about what's involved in preparing for surgery and handling the, the perioperative period. In this section, I will go over upfront radiation as primary treatment for newly diagnosed prostate cancer. Again, if you're skipping forward to this part, the QR code at the bottom will take you to our website with a lot of updated information. So radiation therapy is the use of high-energy photons, typically x-rays or other types of radiation therapy, to destroy cancer cells without actually removing them. Radiation can be given either from the outside in using external beam radiation therapy, or EBRT, or from inside out using brachytherapy, which are temporary or permanent seeds. Sometimes these two forms are combined, and in some cases we also add Hormonal therapy, androgen deprivation therapy. This is treatment to drop the body's testosterone level down to a very low level, which improves the effectiveness of the radiation and the likelihood that it will cure the cancer. The most common type of external beam radiation therapy in the US is intensity modulated radiation therapy, or IMRT, in which radiation is given from, from beams applied at a variety of different angles and in various strengths. We really try to get a high dose to the prostate while minimizing damage to surrounding structures. Usually before starting this, we put three gold markers or beacons into the prostate to help target the external beam radiation. IMRT is usually given five days a week for a short period of time each day, and this is repeated somewhere between four and eight weeks, with the trend definitely being towards shorter courses of treatment, what we call hypofractionation. Brachytherapy, on the other hand, is given using radioactive seeds, which either we place permanently into the prostate or some a version called HDR, high-dose rate brachytherapy, passes a very hot radioactive seed in and out through catheters, which are placed temporarily inside the prostate. Uh, brachytherapy requires at least a spinal anesthetic, or in some cases, a general. Either it's performed as an outpatient procedure, or sometimes with a one-night stay in the hospital, depending on the details of the treatment. And the two are often combined, where brachytherapy gives a high dose to the prostate, called a boost, and the external beam radiation is used to treat the prostate as well as the rest of the pelvis to treat um, any microscopic disease in the lymph nodes as well. Uh, increasing in use and popularity is a version of external beam treatment called stereotactic body radiation therapy. Uh, there are several versions of this. The most common one is called CyberKnife, and this gives the radiation even more precisely and um, in a more customized dose distribution than IMRT, which allows it to be done over a short number of treatments, typically only about five. Uh, this is meant to give a brachytherapy-like dose distribution to the prostate, um, although a few studies have actually compared those two directly head-to-head. -head. 
you will definitely hear about proton th beam radiation therapy if you spend enough time uh, surfing and looking in the internet about prostate cancer treatments. Uh, proton therapy is another form of radiation therapy. You will often see it compared to radiation. Proton therapy is radiation therapy. Instead of using x-rays or photons, it's using protons. It's aggressively marketed by certain centers in California and elsewhere because it's compensated extremely well from Medicare and other payers. Uh, but the reality is, even though there's all kinds of marketing about no exit doses and, and you know pretty pictures and there's lots of patient testimonials, there has never been a single published paper anywhere ever showing any clinical benefit for proton therapy over other forms of radiation therapy in terms of cancer cure rates or avoidance of side effects. So proton therapy is not a bad way to treat prostate cancer, but it's absolutely no better than any of the other forms of radiation we've been talking about in any way. Now, radiation does not instantly destroy the cancer cells. Rather, it damages the DNA to the point where the cells cannot divide and ultimately to the point where they cannot survive. Uh, but this is a slow process, so the cells will die off slowly, and the PSA will fall more slowly than it will after surgery. It can take up to two years for the PSA to reach its low point or its nadir after radiation therapy. Um, in fact, we will often see the PSA bounce up for a short period of time, especially after brachytherapy, and then start falling again. Now, if it really does start rising steadily after radiation, typically we will repeat a biopsy to see if there's any cancer left um, in the prostate. And if there is, we can talk about salvage treatment, um, either additional radiation therapy, sometimes cryo or other forms of ablative therapy or surgery. Although the risks of any of these things is higher than the risks would be upfront. Now, for lower-risk cancers, you know, not the low-risk cancers, which really should be managed with active surveillance, but the ones that are in the, you know, the better end of the intermediate-risk range, cure rates are probably quite comparable between surgery and radiation therapy. For higher-risk cancers, this is controversial. Some studies suggest that surgery, often combined with radiation therapy, yields better cure rates than radiation therapy alone. Uh, but again, this is a little bit controversial and depends on, on what you read. Um, and this is definitely a, a topic that you should talk about in consultation when we really look at the, the details of your specific cancer. Now, the side effects of radiation therapy are different from those of surgery. We really try to avoid thinking in terms of one being better or safer than the other. The risks are different. So radiation is less likely than surgery to cause uh, urinary incontinence or leakage, and it has less of an initial impact on sexual function. However, no matter how perfectly the radiation is given, there's no getting around the fact that the urethra goes right through the middle of the prostate, the bladder is right next door, and the rectum sits right behind the prostate. So some dose always gets to those organs, and radiation typically will produce irritation symptoms, at least in the short term. So that's uh, symptoms like having to go to the bathroom more often to urinate or have a bowel movement or both. You can see some blood in the urine or the stool, diarrhea, and general fatigue, feeling tired. These things are all common for the first couple of months. They usually get better uh, with time, but there are low long-term risk after radiation therapy, just like there are with surgery. We can see things like stricture, which is scar tissue forming in the urethra. They can block the stream, make it difficult to pee. Very rarely, we can see fistulas, which are holes opening between the rectum and the urinary tract that can cause chronic infections. These can be difficult to manage if they happen because the radiated tissue never quite recovers back to what it was like before. We can also see a decline in sexual function over the longer term after radiation therapy. By the time we get to three or four years out from treatment, there's less and less difference between uh, sexual function after nerve sparing prostatectomy and after radiation therapy.
There's also a slight increase in the risk of rectal and bladder cancer if we think forward at least 10 years after prostate radiation. Now, those are still rare cancers. So we think about the risk roughly doubling from very rare to still quite rare. Um, however, I would say that we take seriously symptoms like uh, blood in the urine, hematuria, uh, particularly among smokers after radiation therapy, because this can be a sign of, of bladder cancer. Finally, a brief note on hormonal therapy, on androgen deprivation therapy. Men with higher risk cancers who are heading down the radiation path will typically get hormonal therapy for somewhere between six and 24 months. This is treatment to drop the testosterone level down to a very low level. Without testosterone, uh, the cancer cells will shrink, they regress, and this improves the likelihood of response to radiation therapy. Hormonal therapy should almost never be used by itself for non-metastatic prostate cancer. It's really just used as an adjunct to improve the outcomes from radiation therapy, unless the cancer is spread to other parts of the body, which is a, a very different conversation. Now, hormonal therapy does have its own set of side effects, which are additive with those that we see with radiation or, or other forms of treatment. These include uh, hot flashes, feelings of heat and flushing, sometimes sweating, uh, fatigue, drop in libido, sex drive, uh, and sometimes changes in mood or concentration or memory. Longer term, Hormonal therapy can raise uh, cholesterol levels and blood sugar, and it can weaken the muscles and the bones and can increase other cardiac risk factors as well. It is extremely important to be exercising aggressively while on hormonal therapy. Both cardiac exercise and weight bearing are both important to keep the body strong. There's growing interest in focal therapy as an alternative for prostate cancer treatment. Focal therapy sits somewhere between active surveillance and the more traditional treatments of surgery and radiation therapy. And the goal here is to just treat the tumor and leave the rest of the prostate alone. This is something akin to a lumpectomy for breast cancer. Um, and the idea is using an energy source. The ones that we typically use at UCSF are either cryotherapy, which is using ice, or HIFU, using high-intensity focused ultrasound to heat prostate tissue to the point where it cannot survive. There are many others out there. There's irreversible electrophoration. There's photodynamic, photodynamic therapy. Um, there's interstitial laser. There are many ways to destroy prostate tissue. The key question is, do we have a good sense of what part of the prostate we need to destroy? So a good candidate for focal therapy is somebody who has uh, not low-risk cancer, because that really should just be followed with active surveillance, but with an intermediate-risk cancer, typically a Gleason 3 plus 4, grade group 2, or maybe a small volume 4 plus 3, uh, which is visible on imaging on either ultrasound or MRI. So we can define a target with no more than minimal cancer elsewhere. So it is okay to have a little bit of three plus three that we're not going to treat, but we do have to have some sense that any of the high-grade cancer we can treat within a zone of ablation. There are many details in terms of just how much of the tissue uh, we can ablate versus not, and where the tumor is and how large it is are, is going to drive questions about what the risks of side effects are. Uh, the tumors may be right next to the nerve bundles, in which case the nerves are at some risk, although most men who have good sexual function going into ablation maintain their erections after the procedure. Um, other tumors, which are very close to the urethra, may not be suitable because there's a risk of damaging the urethra with focal therapy. So it really does depend on the details um, in terms of who is a good candidate, but this is something that we are using more and more at UCSF these days. So finally, let's talk a little bit about next steps and moving forward. First is the question, how do you actually come to a final decision about treatment? Now, it's very common and typical to really focus on things like, well, don't you want a minimally invasive treatment? Um, or to rely on anecdote and stories. You know, my neighbor had proton therapy and did great. 
I, I tend to caution patients against this uh, for two reasons. First of all, in terms of the, the invasiveness question, what you really need to focus on is long-term outcomes. Obviously, we try to avoid surgery if possible. We try to avoid invasive treatments when possible. But the fact is, if you had to undergo a surgery to achieve a better long-term outcome, well, that's a good trade-off because the the uh, implications of the decision in terms of how to treat prostate cancer, you're going to live with for years and for decades. Uh, so we really try not to focus on what the short-term um, actual procedure of the treatment looks like. Um, and again, the the it's it's easy to fall into anecdote and looking at a friend or a neighbor uh, or you know advertising materials from a robot company or or something else. You know the thing about prostate cancer being so common is that we have very good data on how men do after treatments, and individual centers should have very good data on their own experience. All the numbers that I've been quoting in this set of videos are based on our experience here at UCSF. Uh, so definitely review data in detail with the team of clinicians that you're going to see, whether at UC or elsewhere. Um, you can get second opinions, you can get third opinions. Uh, you almost always have time with a prostate cancer diagnosis to collect enough opinions that you feel comfortable that you know a good path forward. And it's always encouraged to check in with your primary care doc as well. If you have a good relationship with that provider, um, they can give a, a another very valuable perspective on weighing the uh, weighing the the uh, relative importance of differences in survival versus impacts on your quality of life. Talk it over with family, talk it over with friends. And if uh, if you think it will be helpful, by all means, come to one of the support groups that we run all over the Bay Area or that can be found in most other major centers uh, in the country. Now, do you have to come to UCSF or to another major center? Um, the answer is, you know, it, it depends. Outcomes from all of the treatments we've been talking about in these videos vary widely from place to place and from physician to physician, even within a center. You know, there is no question that the quality of care and the outcomes of care tend to be best at high volume centers like UCSF. We have exceptional depth and breadth of expertise. Prostate cancer tends to be what we eat, breathe, live, and sleep um, in managing really all aspects of prostate cancer care. Um, but at the end of the day, you really need to be comfortable with your individual team, and you need to ask a lot of questions in terms of what the local outcomes are and local expectations, ask questions about how the data are collected, and how does a given physician know what his or her outcomes look like. Other things to think about, uh, diet, exercise, lifestyle are all very, very important. Maintaining a healthy diet and doing a lot of exercise can greatly facilitate your recovery after treatment, whether we're talking about surgery, radiation therapy, or hormones. The good news here is that you don't really need to worry about a prostate diet versus a cardiac diet. Generally speaking, there's good food and bad food. And what's good for the heart, on average, tends to be good for prostate cancer risk and tends to be good for recovery as well. So in terms of eating well, you want to minimize saturated fats, minimize simple carbohydrates like starches, you know, white rice, pasta, bread. These things are fine in small portions, but should not be the basis of your diet. Uh, avoid processed foods. One of the one-liners is if you have to unwrap it, you probably shouldn't eat it and try to go around the edges of the supermarket, try not to walk into, up and down the aisles at all as much as you can avoid it. Uh, certainly avoid smoking. And there are a number of specific reasons you should stop smoking if you have a prostate cancer diagnosis. Um, smoking increases the risk of the cancer progressing. It's also bad for sexual function uh, and bad for urinary recovery as well. Um, and then, as I mentioned in the section on hormonal therapy, exercise, both cardiac exercise and weight-bearing, is very, very important uh, to keep your muscles and bones strong and keep your cholesterol and blood sugar in check. And the QR code in the lower right here will take you to a 
a whole separate page that we maintain on exactly these sorts of interventions and considerations, as well as trials that we're running um, on interventions in terms of uh, lifestyle for men with prostate cancer, which takes us to the question of clinical trials. Um, so we and other academic institutions are constantly looking for better ways to manage prostate cancer, better ways to diagnose it, risk stratify it, and manage it. So at any given time, there may be opportunities for you to participate in a clinical trial for any one of these questions, screening, diagnosis, management, to try to determine whether a new test or a new treatment might be better than the current standard of care. Um, if any of these are available, we will let you know when you come for the visits. Participation is, of course, always completely optional. We will go over the potential risks, potential benefits of any new test or treatment. Um, but this is always something, a space to keep an eye on, um, especially at places like UCSF, where we really are constantly trying to drive the standard of care forward. And finally, I'm going to end with one of the first things I said at the beginning of this series of of uh, videos, which is stay positive. It is really critical to remember that prostate cancer is almost always slow growing with nearly 100% five-year survival for even the high-risk localized tumors. Um, and these days we have more drugs coming out every year than we honestly know what to do with and how to sequence them for men even with advanced prostate cancer. So survival is better every year. And most of the side effects of treatment can be managed. So I mentioned it along the way here, nobody should be suffering in silence. If you do have urinary problems, bowel problems, sexual function problems after treatment, speak up because there's, always, there's almost always something we can do to help. And again, you have time, take a deep breath. You have plenty of time to collect the information you need and to make management decisions that makes sense for your priorities um, and will be a decision that you'll feel good about uh, going forward as you move into treatment and into survivorship. Finally, questions, you're going to have lots of them. Write them down, bring them with you to the visit. Um, if you can, bring a partner, a friend, family member to the visit, whether it's on telehealth or in person, bring an advocate with you, somebody to help you take notes, help you remember your questions. I can't think of any uh, clinicians around UCSF who object to the visits being recorded. In fact, we, re we encourage it. And, you know, a smartphone can do this. Uh, it's very easy to do. And it's great to be able to come back and, and reference um, the conversation after the fact, because it can be a lot of information to take in. So with that, thanks for your attention. Uh, one more time, here's the QR code that will go to the website with that we keep updated. I will update these videos from time to time, but the website will be updated probably a little bit more frequently. Um, and I'm going to end with a massive thank you to the UCSF patient advocates who have been tireless in their support of our program for 20 years in all aspects of our clinical care and research, um, and who have, in particular, really given phenomenally helpful advice in terms of preparation of these videos. Uh, we're always open to feedback, so please contact us with information that you think is missing or things you would like to see um, added. And uh, we look forward to meeting you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.